0: Episode 3, The Tipping Point, Real-Life Law of Attraction Examples.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Ambassadors of Joy. Woohoo! We are so excited to have you with us on this journey for our third episode. Um, Again, my name is Priya. And I'm Amy. And we are here to bridge the worlds of spirituality and business. So our intention for today is to let go of anything that's weighing us down, any beliefs, any thoughts, any baggage from the past or concerns about the future. Let's all let it dissipate while we experience the joy that comes out of this episode. So what Amy's going to do now is ring some chimes and for a few seconds we'll we'll take some moments to just reflect on ourselves and let go before we begin. Thank you so much for the chimes, Amy. It's my favorite part of the episode. (laughs) Mine too. All right, let's talk about what we're going to cover today. So today we are going to be covering The Tipping Point.
0: I'm very excited about this. I've never read it. It's on my bookshelf. It's one of those books that you hear so many people talk about and you're like, oh, I have to get it. Of course I do. Any kind of business person would need to read it. (laughs) <laughs> so I bought it, and I, the edges are yellow. It's been sitting there for ages.
1: Edges are yellow from not reading. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, like when it's just collecting dust,
1: right? Just full disclosure here, I have read the book
0: it's good to have a refresher.
1: It is good to have a refresher. But as we know, The Tipping Point is one of the most popular books by Malcolm Gladwell. And it dives deep into this idea of a threshold or boiling point that puts certain social behaviors, um, pushes them over the edge, helps them gain momentum and pushes them over that tipping point. So Amy, why, you know, why did we pick this book? Well, I was reading another book.
0: (laughs) It's called The Law of Attraction. You may have already heard of it in our other episodes, and we have a link to that book in our show notes, so you can take a look at that. But as we were reading The Law of Attraction, Priya brought up this book to me. You said, I actually heard of this example from Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point, specifically about the New York City subway, yes. and how the graffiti example in the book really stood out to you as a real-life case study of the law of attraction It was. in action.
1: Yeah, no, I'm trying to remember. What were we talking about before? I remember. Okay. So you told me that, you know how when you go to the bathroom and... <laughs> <laughs> this episode is not about going to the bathroom, but maybe it will be. Who knows? Yeah, but you, go with you, this is what, you don't remember this, huh? Okay, I'm gonna remind <laughs> okay. you. So you
0: you told me, you know when you go to a public oh, bathroom, oh yes,
1: yes, yes, and yes, the I bathroom remember.
0: is yeah. super dirty, and because it's so dirty, you drop something on the floor. You're not gonna go pick it up because well, it's, it's already dirty. dirty. You're not gonna clean up something that's already dirty. You're just gonna make it more dirty. Versus, if you go to a super nice bathroom like the St. Regis, yeah, right, and it's like marble floors, yeah, everything is clean and sparkly. If yep. you drop something, if you drop
1: a, a molecule, you pick it up, <laughs> right? <laughs> However, you yeah. do that, right? <laughs> Let me pick
0: up my yeah. minuscule tweezers and pick spit up this molecule by line? talking. I'm gonna wipe it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so that trigger your memory of this book and the New York City graffiti example. That I've never read before, but it it really resonated with me.
1: Yeah. So there's this one specific example that I remembered, like Amy mentioned from the book, where they were trying for years and years to figure out how to eliminate the graffiti problem where the New York City subways were just every day covered in graffiti. And nothing seemed to work until eventually somebody had the idea. I don't remember the details because I read this book a very long time ago. So this is going to be a great refresher for me as well. But Someone had the idea of just repainting the subways every night at the end of the day. And then no matter how much graffiti was on it the next day, every day repainting the subway. And it worked. And so we were thinking about this bathroom example and the law of attraction and the subway example and really, really thinking deeply about this idea of people matching vibrations and energies matching vibrations and how that is the basis of how everything works. This example in The Tipping Point, eventually people stopped adding graffiti to the subways because they knew it was going to be cleaned up and it was going to be painted over. They
0: turned a dirty bathroom into a super clean bathroom right? because there were so many incidents of this clean bathroom happening in front of you every single day you're no longer engaging in the dirty bathroom activities. Yeah.
1: And so it's almost like it's lifting up your vibrations. Yes. Yeah. So anyways, we are going to dive deeper into that as we dive into the book, which Amy has open on her her lap here. Let's go for it. So it looks like there
0: are eight sections of the book. That's how it's divided. And uh, let's see... There is an introduction, obviously. We've done that before. We've read through introductions before and we don't get past like page... X yeah. or V, <laughs> right? When there's still like new, num- like Roman numerals. <laughs>
1: we're like, we're not even on page one. That's, that's funny. When I was over at Amy's place, I think we, we talked briefly about this story in another episode, but her husband suggested a book for us to read. And so we were reading it and we, we come in during a break and we're like, Ed, that's her husband. Ed, we have so many insights. He's like, oh, great. You finished the book? We're, we're like, like no, no, we're still in the introduction but i think we're getting it we have we so have many so insights
0: much. and actions so okay this is the table of contents let me know what rings about you okay so the first one is uh, the three rules of epidemics Ooh, let's do that okay <laughs> all right let's just dive right in page 15 at least we're getting further from page x or five okay let me just Roman, yeah. Roman numerals. <laughs> right. Page 15. These are real numbers. Okay.
1: Hey, Roman numerals are real numbers, too. Yeah, what is that? <laughs> what? Where did that come from? Hush. <laughs> Erase that.
0: Okay. So it says here, the three rules of epidemics. In the mid-1990s, the city of Baltimore was attacked by an epidemic of syphilis. Mm-hmm. Mm. Already interesting. In the space of a year from 1995 to 1996, the number of children born with the disease increased by 500 percent. If you look at Baltimore syphilis rates on a graph, the line runs straight for many years and then, when it hits 1995, raises almost at a right angle. Wow. What caused Baltimore syphilis problem to tip? According to the Centers of Disease Control, the problem was crack cocaine. Crack is known to cause dramatic increase in the kind of risky sexual behavior that leads to the spread of a thing like HIV and syphilis. It brings far more people into poor areas to buy drugs, which then increases the likelihood that they will take an infection home with them to their own neighborhood. Hmm. It changes the pattern of social connections between neighborhoods. Crack, the CDC said, was the little push that syphilis problem needed to turn into a raging epidemic. John Zilliman of John Hopkins University at Baltimore, an expert on sexually transmitted disease, has another explanation. The breakdown of medical services in the city's poorest neighborhoods. In 1990 to 1991, we had 36,000 patients visits at a city's sexually transmitted disease clinic. Zilliman says. Then the city decided to gradually cut back because of budgetary problems. The number of clinicians went from 17 to 10. The number of physicians went from three to essentially nobody. Patient visits dropped to 21,000. There also was a similar drop in the amount of field outreach staff. There was a lot of politics, things that used to happen, like computer upgrades didn't happen. It was a worst-case scenario of city bureaucracy not functionally. They would run out of drugs. I guess drugs for treatments, right? right, in this case. So it goes on to talk more about these stats in terms of patient visits in a year, in terms of STD clinics in Baltimore, And how in the past, the disease was kept in equilibrium when the number of patient visits were higher. And then there's a third theory he says here, which belongs to John Potterat, one of the country's leading epidemiologists. His culprits are the physical changes in those years affecting East and West Baltimore, the heavily depressed neighborhoods on either side of Baltimore's downtown, where a syphilis problem was centered. He's talking about the depression of the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Just want to clarify that. In the mid-1990s, he points out that the city of Baltimore embarked on a highly publicized policy of dynamiting the old 1960s-style public housing, high-rises in East and West Baltimore. Two of the most publicized demolitions, Lexington Terrace in West Baltimore and Lafayette Courts in East Baltimore, were huge projects, housing hundreds of families that served as centers for crime and infectious disease. At the same time, people began to move out of the old row houses in East and West Baltimore as those began to deteriorate as well. So Gladwell says, what is interesting about these three explanations is that none of them is at all dramatic. Hmm. The CDC thought the crack was the problem, but it wasn't as if crack came to Baltimore for the first time in 1995. Right. It had been there for years. Momentum? Hmm. What they were saying is that there was a subtle increase in the severity of crack problem in the mid-1990s. And that change was enough to set off the syphilis epidemic. Huh. I think he's referring to that tipping point, right? What is pushing that to set off something Mm -hmm. at the tipping point? Mm -hmm. And then he goes on and says, Zilliman, likewise, wasn't saying that the STD clinics in Baltimore were shut down. They were simply scaled back. The number of clinicians cut from 17 to 10. All it took was the demolition of a handful of housing projects and the abandonment of homes in key downtown neighborhoods to send syphilis over the top. It takes only the smallest of changes to shatter an epidemic's equilibrium he said these are the three agents of change i call Mm -hmm. the law of the few the stickiness factor and the power of context
1: the law of few Mm -hmm. the stickiness factor and the power of context yes these are the three agents of change that's what gladwell is
0: summarizing There is more than one way to tip an epidemic. In other words, epidemics are a function of the people who transmit infectious agents, the infectious agents itself, and the environment in which the infectious agent is operating. And when the epidemic tips, when it's jolted out of equilibrium, it tips because something has happened. Some change has occurred in one
1: or two or three of those areas. Let's talk about epidemics for a little bit because an epidemic can be something that is either negative, like in this case of the syphilis epidemic in Baltimore, mm-hmm. or it can be something that's more positive. I feel yes. like just, it's just this idea of this momentum, like you said, building up towards a tipping point of something happening. Now, what I found was an interesting sentence, and in what you read was it takes, in this syphilis example, There were small, very subtle changes Mm -hmm. that were enough to spur on the epidemic, and that it takes only the smallest of changes to get to the epidemic equilibrium. Now, that's super interesting, especially if we think about it in terms of the, the energy building up into the momentum of something happening and i'm i'm thinking about that in terms of just even our day-to-day lives and maybe some of these big goals or dreams or things that we all want to manifest And it's the same notion where there's going to be at some point, a tipping point, where we reach that point of equilibrium because we've made small, nuanced changes in one, two, or three areas. Mm -hmm. And it's all building up to allow that big change to manifest. Something you're saying there is also triggering a thought in me.
0: I've been practicing personally. How not you always ask the how, actually. That's like a loaded statement in of itself. And reading this passage from Gladwell is fascinating because he's basically saying, we don't know how it happened. (laughs) These are just things that kind of fell into place (sighs) because of this certain timing of everything that manifested this... Tipping point where this syphilis epidemic occurred. And it's not like overnight, right? Yeah. So, what I'm trying to bring up is sometimes we create this lofty goal in our mind or this dream that we think is lofty. Let's just say that no dream is too big to achieve. That's not what I'm trying to argue against. But Let's say we have this big dream we're trying to achieve, and the moment we decided to achieve that dream, we're pretty much 50% of the way there because the moment that you decide on something, Mm -hmm. you're creating momentum towards that goal already because you've made up your mind, in your mind that you're going to achieve it. But the other 50% is usually we always ask, how do we reach that goal? And the moment that you ask the how is the moment that you're introducing some sort of resistance because it could happen in millions of ways.
1: Right. The key is to be open to all of the different ways that it could happen. Yes. And put yourself in alignment with those energies. Yes. So what
0: is happening here as I'm reading this is I love that Gladwell is bringing in three different possibilities because none of them are happening in silo. It's all of them
1: coming together. That is fascinating. Fascinating, Amy. (laughs) That is super fascinating. Sorry, continue. Yeah.
0: So uh, what I'm just what I'm trying to say is actually it's probably more than three of these, to be honest.
1: Yeah. More than three of these. Yeah. That
0: really pushed the momentum of the syphilis epidemic to manifest to actually happen. But I I like the idea that there's already three and that there's no just one single silver bullet that took us to that epidemic for Baltimore. It is these possibilities that just happen, and it's all like you said. It it all happened in in a period of time where it they found alignment with each other hmm. that got to that point. So I do believe in this idea of momentum building over time, and that there are many, many ways f- for us to build momentum to manifest anything. Could be like you said negative in this case of syphilis or something positive like that dream that you had of beautiful vacation a beautiful home happy life with lots of Ah, animals walking around (laughs) (laughs) could be whatever that is but you you know you never know how you're gonna get there just like this scenario
1: i love that and the first inspired action i'm thinking is don't focus on the how focus on the now (laughs) Find alignment with the possibilities that could lead to momentum. Yes. Should we dive a little deeper into these three agents of change? Yes. So the first one was the law of the few. The question of what makes someone or something persuasive is a lot less straightforward than it seems. We know it when we see it. But just what it, in quotes, is is not always obvious. Consider the following two examples, both drawn from the psychological literature. The first is an experiment that took place during the 1984 presidential campaign between Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale. For eight days before the election, a group of psychologists led by Brian Mullen of Syracuse University videotaped the three national nightly news programs, which then, as now, were anchored by Peter Jennings at ABC, Tom Broca at NBC, and Dan Rather at CBS. Mullen examined the tapes and excerpted all references to the candidates until he had 37 separate segments, each roughly two and a half seconds long. Those segments were then shown, with the sound turned off to a group of randomly chosen people who were asked to rate the facial expressions of each newscaster in each segment. The subjects had no idea what kind of experiment they were involved with or what the newscasters were talking about. They were simply asked to score the emotional content of the expressions of these three men on a 21-point scale, with the lowest being extremely negative, and the highest point on the scale extremely positive. The results were fascinating. Dan Rather scored 10.46, which translates to an almost perfectly neutral expression, when he talked about Mondale, and 10.37 when he talked about Reagan. He looked the same when he talked about the Republican as he did when he talked about the Democrat. The same was true for Brokaw, who scored 11.21 for Mondale and 11.5 for Reagan, but Peter Jennings of ABC was much different. For Mondale, he scored 13.38, but when he talked about Reagan, his face lit up so much He scored 17.44. Mullen and his colleagues went out of their way to try to come up with an innocent explanation for this. Could it be, for example, that Jennings is just more expressive in general than his colleagues? The answer seemed to be no. The subjects were also shown control segments of the three newscasters as they talked about unequivocally happy or sad subjects. The funeral of Indira Gandhi, a breakthrough in treating a congenital disease. But Jennings didn't score any higher on the happy subjects or lower on the sad subjects than his counterparts. In fact, if anything, he seemed to be the least expressive of the three. It also isn't the case that Jennings is simply someone who has a happy expression on his face all the time. Again, the opposite seemed to be true. The only possible conclusion, according to the study, is that Jennings exhibited a significant and noticeable bias in facial expression toward Reagan. Now, apparently the study gets more interesting, but I already have some things that I want to talk about based on that. And I feel like you do too, Amy, from the notes that I could see you taking. And I think my first one is something that I've learned and been increasingly aware of in my interactions with, with other people. And it's this idea that when how you're feeling inside makes its way to your intentions, to your thoughts, then to your words, through your actions, even mm-hmm. if you don't think it's doing that. Mm-hmm. And so if we are truly fearful of a situation, for example, and we have been spending a lot of our time thinking about the negatives of what could happen in the situation, even if we are, let's say, talking to somebody in that situation, we're talking to somebody and we're using words that are positive, the negative energy still comes through. Mm-hmm. Like in this case with Peter Jennings, he was so happy. he was, It seems so about Reagan that that just came through yes. in the expression and other people noticed it. And that is energy coming through. That is his vibrational energy from inside making its way out and other people picking up on that vibrational energy. And I feel like it's the same when, you know, we're around somebody who might be having a bad day mm-hmm. and we pick up on that energy. Yes. So it's just so interesting once we become aware of the nuances of how that works and how that impacts not only us, but also the people around us who pick up on that energy. As this example, as this study shows, yeah, there's there's no voice <laughs> in what the people were viewing,
0: right? Yeah, when they were watching these clips from these newscasters. So really, they were just rating everyone on an emotional scale, and that really stuck out to me. You're rating based on the emotions that is being expressed in your fa- in the facial expressions. And I jot down this phrase, Hmm. vibrational translator. Oh. Yes, I thought you might like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm starting to learn that we are vessels of the experience that is being funneled through our body. Right? We're just like a vessel where we are channeling some of these energies and emotions that we feel. And we are truly expert vibrational translators. And what is being written about in Gladwell's example in this case is that people who are talking about the news of the night, they're reporting on it, they are the vibrational translator. Oh that's so interesting. Well how they're feeling how they're interpreting the candidates themselves and they using their own body, their own facial expression, their own vessel, right translate all of that frequency and energy out in of course they use words. But you don't need words as proven wow. in this study. You just need the everything that is coming together in your body, in your facial expression, with your energy, with your smile or no smile. Those are the things that helps us communicate what it is that you're feeling about something.
1: It's so interesting how how nuanced all of this communication and vibrational exchange can be. And almost all the time, we don't realize it's happening. Yeah.
0: I mean, how many times do you look at a baby and you're able to pick up, oh, yeah, he's looking uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> oh, he looks like he has yeah. his diaper needs to be changed.
0: Yeah. Everything is energy and frequency, right? Like even, even the smell of his poop. <laughs> what? That is is frequency. That is energy. You're like, oh, that doesn't smell right. (laughs) I don't know how we got to that topic. But anyway.
1: (laughs) It reminds me, it does bring me to an inspired action. And it is for each of us to take a moment to think about, are there any energies that I may be putting out there, either good or bad, that I am not consciously aware of?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And more towards the negative. Are there any negative energies that I might be translating out to other people because of something that I believe inside? Yes.
0: And I think you can really get a feel for what that is by seeing other people's reactions. If someone is taken back by what you're saying or how you are presenting yourself or if they're closed off, you know, their body language and the way that they react to you is a very good signal for you to kind of reflect mm-hmm. on some of these things. There are a lot of things that I've done in the past with <laughs> words that I say, movements that I make with my hands or body, whatever it is that, that make people
1: say, did you really mean to say that or did you really mean to do that? And then I was like, no, I didn't. Yeah. And you know, I think this is especially important in the context of of business and success in that world because, you know, in business, we are constantly trying to bring people into our vibrations, maybe into the type of service that we are providing, or maybe we're leading our team. And, in those interpersonal situations, we are unwittingly translating these energies to other people. And you know we don't we don't know it. So really, to sit back and think, take a moment to think about, how have I been talking to this person? Or how have I been pitching this service or this business? Is there any blocks from inside or any energies that are coming out in my conversations with these people that I was not aware of? Yes, it's good to do reflection on that. And another tip I'm going to add to that is because,
0: you know, I I do a lot of thinking. And the reason why I love meditation now more than I have before is that I'm able to clear my thoughts quite a bit and really connect with my emotions. So, as you're making these reflections that Priya suggested, another thing that you can practice on is actually connecting to how you're feeling at the time when you're doing the reflections. Because sometimes when you think too much, you could potentially overanalyze, especially when we are working in the world of business, when you are an entrepreneur, when you're working in Silicon Valley or in a big corporation. Wherever you might be, I know for myself, I tend to overanalyze a lot. So you don't need to feel like you're overanalyzing, but the reflection should bring you a sense of clarity. Mm -hmm. And that sense of clarity is your emotional guidance to what it is that you are trying to gather
1: insights around. And your own inspired actions. Yes. As a result of those insights. (laughs)
0: Yes. Yeah, you're, you're you guys are on your way to, <laughs> to collecting
1: your <laughs> own inspired actions to doing this podcast. <laughs> yes. Can't
0: wait to have more people here than just me and you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we have the folks in the studio who are helping us out. I know. It's so cool. Thank you. <laughs> so,
0: there's a few more that we can read about. There is the power of context and stickiness. Let's go to that. Yes. I love it. So I'm going to read this story that introduces the stickiness factor. I think we'll be able to get a lot out of that. So the stickiness factor starts with, in the late 1960s, a television producer named Joan Gons Cooney set out to start an epidemic. Her target was three, four, and five years old. Her agent of infection was television, and the virus she wanted to spread was literacy. The show would last an hour and run five days a week, and the hope was that if that hour was contagious enough, it could serve as an educational tipping point, giving children from disadvantaged homes a leg up once they began elementary school, spreading pro-learning values from watchers to non-watchers, infecting children and their parents, and lingering long enough to have an impact well after the children stopped watching the show. Kuni probably wouldn't have used these concepts or described her goals in precisely this way. But what she wanted to do, in essence, was create a learning epidemic to counter the prevailing epidemics of poverty and illiteracy. She called her idea Sesame Street. By any measure, this was an audacious idea. Television is a great way to reach lots of people very easily and cheaply. It entertained and dazzled, but it isn't a particularly educational medium. Gerald Lesser, a Harvard University psychologist who joined Cooney in founding Sesame Street, says that when he was first asked to join the project back in the late 1960s, he was skeptical. I had always been very much into fitting how you teach what you know about the child, he says. You try to find the kid's strengths so you can play to them. You try to understand the kid's weaknesses so you can avoid them. Then you try and teach that individual kid's profile. Television has no potential, no power to do that. He was focused on the how. Yeah, about that. (laughs) Good teaching is interactive. It engages the child individually. It uses all the senses, the five senses. It responds to the child, but a television is just a talking box. In experiments, children who are asked to read a passage and are then tested on it will invariably score higher than children asked to watch a video of the same subject matter. Educational experts describe television as low-involvement. Television is like a strain of the common cold that can spread like a light, like a lightning <laughs> through a population. I'm hearing a lot of limiting beliefs here around yeah. the power of television. But only causes a few sniffles and it's gone in a day. I just love how Gladwell just like puts the virus <laughs> and the infections of syphilis in every single sentence he can get his hands on. It's really reiterating that energy and vibration. But Cooney and Lesser and a third partner, Lloyd uh, Morissette, of the Marco Foundation in New York, set out to try anyway. They enlisted some of the top creative minds of the period. They borrowed techniques from television commercials to teach children about numbers. They used the live animation of Saturday morning cartoons to teach lessons about learning the alphabet. They brought in celebrities to sing and dance and star in comedy sketches that taught children about the virtues of cooperation or about their own emotions. Sesame Street aimed higher and tried harder than any other children's show had, and the extraordinary thing was that it worked. Virtually every time the show's educational value has been tested, the Sesame Street has been subject to more academic sc- scrutiny than any television show in history. It has been proved to increase the reading and learning skills of its viewers. There are few educators and child psychologists who don't believe that the show managed to spread its infectious, again, (laughs) message well beyond the homes of those who watch the show regularly. We're almost done. The creators of Sesame Street accomplished something extraordinary, and the story of how they did that is a marvelous illustration of the second of the rules of the tipping point, the stickiness factor. They discovered that by making small but critical adjustments in how they presented ideas to preschoolers, they could overcome television's weakness as a teaching tool and make what they had to say memorable. Sesame Street succeeded because it learned how to make television sticky.
1: I am getting goosebumps over that story because... There's a lot in there. There is so much to cover. And I definitely learned a lot of what I learned in the early years from watching Sesame Street. I grew up watching it every day. I was watching Barney.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Another story on that later, but (laughs) you know, when he was talking about the stickiness factor in his last sentence there, I couldn't help to think that, yes, it was sticky, but why was it sticky? And the whole time that I was reading all of this, of how they, you know, found different ways to create educational program that kids loved, that raises their skills on certain things that they tested in school for. I just kept thinking about this image of the joy, Mm -hmm. the joyful vibrations that Sesame Street brought to all of us. And none of these ideas that was listed here sounded like a lot of work for the producers, to be honest. It just sounded like they were having so much fun testing, creating, and putting together something that brought children a lot of joy while being educational. And so in my mind, the stickiness factor has a lot to do with how much joy and happiness this show actually brought to its viewers. And it's because of that vibration that created some sort of momentum that really attracted the kids to come back to and open them up to receive the messages or the lessons or the learnings that they were trying to communicate to the kids. And so that information actually retained even more so than if they went to school and learned at a table, staring into
1: a chalkboard where there is no acting, no fun, no colors, or watched a show, also educational but very dry. Yeah, because it it's quote unquote educational, so maybe it should not be fun.
0: Yeah, for example. Yes, I see kids giggle when they watch. Sesame Street or the Teletubbies, or in my case, Barney, right? <laughs> <laughs> i not afraid to say that. I was having, that's how I learned my English. So whatever sentence I was getting stuck on, I gotta, <laughs> gotta blame Barney for that, not me. <laughs> <laughs> no blame, no blame,
1: no. <laughs> I love that interpretation of it because it reminds me of everything that we've been talking about when it comes to the work that you do. Mm -hmm. And taking advantage of opportunities we have to really reach our potentials by joining joy and learning and growing and improving. Because I do believe that we're all here because we are looking to create and grow and continuing to learn. And for all of our lives, people have told us that work has to be, it's hard work. Maybe, you know, we've heard that work is not fun. Work shouldn't be fun. <laughs> it's a daily grind. How many times have we heard this idea of daily grind? Just all of this constant messaging, which is very similar to your comments about the Sesame Street example that Gladwell brings up, is that why not, why not leverage both joy and learning and growing together. Who says that that can't happen? Yeah. Anybody who says that that can't happen is it's a limiting belief, right? It's not yes. true.
0: <laughs> and we have so many limiting beliefs because we, we're not used to doing things that way. You know, people take one thing, like you said, learning, and they put it in a box.
1: Yeah. Like, this is how you do it. <laughs> yeah. TV, no, that's not for learning.
0: Yeah, that's for entertainment. What?
1: What? <laughs> Who's? Who cares? Who says what for what? Do what brings you joy and what works for you. Yes. Right. And that's what they did with the show. So I think that's an amazing example, and I love the analysis, Amy, that you came up with that. And it also reminds me of there's a sentence that I wrote down while you were talking mm-hmm. and reading, but it was by making small critical adjustments. They were able to overcome TV's weaknesses. And so to me, people were telling them that TV is not the platform for this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And people were telling them again and again about the things that cannot be done. What cannot work.
0: <laughs> or how it how it should be done. Or how right? it should be
1: done. Right. Instead of embracing the positives of the situation the and, f- and the possibilities the and opportunities. the opportunities yes, and focusing on that as a way forward as a new way forward as a perhaps more powerful than ever way forward mm-hmm. because you know others have not embraced that that conjunction of in this example tv and education in this way and so i was thinking that this is very similar to how we look at ourselves, Mm. especially how we look at ourselves and maybe how successful we are, how successful we're not, the things that we have to do. We look at other people as maybe role models and they do things a certain way. We feel like we We have to do things the same way. And we focus constantly on our weaknesses and what we can't do what we cannot do, what holds us back, the limitations. And this is a great example of how it's not about that. That's not the path forward to success. The path forward is making the adjustments that we need to make mirroring what we want to do with what brings us joy and overcoming those weaknesses and really not even caring about them and instead embracing in a full way the opportunities that are unique to us because of who we are Yeah, and embracing that as a path forward. And
0: as you're saying this, I'm just going back to the book right now because what they really wanted to do is focus on the goal, Mm-hmm. Right? like All they wanted to do is create this show that will uplift or lift the literacy rates of people that don't have access to education. They didn't let the hows and the talks about weaknesses or the shoulds or the don'ts limit them in reaching that goal. Because those are all things that creates resistance on your path to achieving anything that you set your heart out to achieve. I love that they didn't let any of these limiting beliefs, like you're saying, restrict them at all, and that they focused on bringing joy. They focused on the end goal, and everything that they did just kind of fell
1: in place for them, and it just happened. And that's what made it extraordinary, and that's what can make us extraordinary. Yes,
0: and that's what makes it sticky.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, We should talk to Malcolm about this. <laughs> so the third inspired action is to focus on the goal and to play with the opportunities you already have and what you already have.
0: And allowing those opportunities to come through and show itself to you. A lot of times when we have resistance, the opportunities are usually right in front of us. Mm-hmm. We're just so focused on the lack of something or the weakness of something or the fear of something that we basically put blindfolds on
1: ourselves. And then we attract those vibrations back in.
0: Yes, correct. And so the idea is that we want to not focus on those things that will limit us from reaching the goal, but we want to take off that blindfold and really be able to receive the opportunities that are probably just right in front of us. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. So do
1: we have our three? We do have our three. Can we recap what they are? Let's recap what they are. (laughs) So the first one is don't focus on the how, focus on the now. Find alignment with the possibilities that could lead to momentum. Yes. The second one is to think about whether there are any energies that you might be putting out or translating to other people that you're not aware of and connecting to how you're feeling during those reflections rather than overanalyzing on them. So that one, if I may summarize, just having awareness that you are a vibrational translator. Yes. Yes. And the third one is to focus on your goal and play with the opportunities that you have and just in general, what you have and allowing those opportunities to come through.
0: There's just so much. Mm -hmm. This
1: is a great book. Yeah.
0: It is still as yellow as I found it in my bookshelf.
1: (laughs) But I'm very happy that we were able to dive in. Definitely. So to end this episode, we would love to come back to setting an intention of really thinking about these inspired actions that we came up with and being aware of the energies that we embody and how we might be reflecting those out and to focus on the opportunities. And joy. And joy. So let's take a few seconds, if you'd care to chime us, Amy. Yes. Into our brief reflection.
0: So I had a lot of fun in that episode, and I hope all of you enjoyed the journey with us through Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. I know I did. And so please like our podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us on. Give us a rating. And if you would like to suggest a book, please, please send us a note, drop us a line, and and if you have anything else that you would like us to cover or even be a guest on our show, as we do live case studies, we would love to have you. So until next time, please smile, reflect, and go on your joyful journey throughout the rest of your day and your